to the Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Moravec. And I'm Kelly Moravec. And today we're recording live from the kitchen. Kelly and I are streaming live on Facebook for this episode as we discuss Diane Ravitch's reign of error, the hoax of the privatization movement, and the danger to America's public schools. So Kelly, how does, uh, how, how does this book discussion work? Uh, well, we over the last month since uh, our last book discussion, John and I have both been reading Reign of Error. And um, you can see my favorite reading strategy is sticky notes. Um, and we sat down at the kitchen table last night and decided on the uh, kind of the, the, the top themes that emerged for both of us. And then condense those down into, what do we have, eight questions and then a couple of bonus questions because reading the book prompted us to watch uh, Waiting for Superman uh, the, other <laughs> night, the other night. So we have a couple of bonus questions to discuss uh, about that movie. Cool. Yeah. So we, let's start. Let's start. All right. So how do we start? We haven't done this together before. We can start. Your first question. Um, was Ravitch opened her book with four questions that can be useful in guiding this conversation. The four questions are, first, is American education in crisis? Second, is American education failing and declining? Third, what is the evidence for the reforms now being promoted by the federal government and adopted in many states? And fourth, what should we do to improve our schools and the lives of children? And those are really global questions that she used to really frame the first uh, three quarters of the book. Mm -hmm. So, Kelly, what's your take? Is American education in crisis? Um, You know, I think that crisis is sort of a harsh word. Um, In the book, she talks about this idea that when you describe something as crisis, it... Uh, demeans the hard work that the people who are, you know, putting work into fixing something are doing. Um, and so I don't know that I'd want to classify it as crisis, but I do think that there is definite room for improvement in our current education system. How about right. you? Well, in my view, I I don't think that there's really a real crisis as in we need like, oh my God, we need, we need uh, dr- uh, dramatic change now. Uh, but I think that we do need to start addressing the questions of like, what are we schooling for? What is educating for? Uh, what sort of outcomes do we want to, out of this? So from there, we could start crafting our future directions. Mm-hmm. And I think that much of that uh, conversation has been missing quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, what did Diane Ravitch um, think? Well, she also doesn't necessarily think that uh, American education is in as much crisis as uh, what the education reformers um, would have us all believe, um, that based on you know standardized test results, that it does appear that the United States is, is not a forerunner in um, the, the quality of education across the world. Um, however, if you look at no-stakes testing like NAEP, um, the results aren't uh, quite as crisis-seeming as the reformers might have us believe. Okay. So what is the difference between high-stakes testing and no-stakes testing? So high-stakes testing uh, really came along with our No Child Left Behind policies and um, continue then with uh, the Common Core State Standards. And they're basically the standardized tests that students take um, throughout the school year to prove uh, that they have reached proficiency with the standards that are um, what are acceptable for each different grade level. 
Um, and so they're high stakes because a lot of decisions about children, about teachers, about schools, about districts are made based on those results. Um, no stakes testing, um, like NAEP, is uh, there, there's no stakes. N no one knows who will be taking it. No one takes the entire test. Um, it's really just a sampling of different kids from around the, the United States, I guess, um, that, that, take, that take this test. Okay. Well, I think that one globally recognized uh, no-stakes testing example would be the, the PISA scores or the PISA tests, which are to help give insight as to uh, the approaches and quality of education comparatively around the world. Mm -hmm. right. All right. Well, so is American education failing and declining? What do you think? Well, I think that's a popular thing to say uh, among politicians that want to want to get in office. And um, I think that that so many of the social problems that we have are blamed on education. Mm -hmm. Education is an easy target because it's hard to have a response or a coordinated response back from education. And we say, hey, that ain't so. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm reluctant to uh, take that position. I think it's uh, too easy to blame education uh, for, for problems that may be emerging more socially or much more through some problems that we have systemically uh, throughout society. Mm -hmm. All right. I agree. I think, you know, if you look at this question more on uh, uh, the basis of our, of our children, there are definitely some children that are being failed by our current education system. Um, maybe more than, uh, or maybe most might be failed by our current education system, but there are some that the current education system serves. Um, and whether that's because it's the right system for them or because of their circumstances at home and, and where they come from and um, the kinds of supports that they have or just the, the kind of person that they are, um, that, I guess, remains to be seen. So I don't know that I would say that it's necessarily failing and declining, but I definitely would think if we look on a kid-by-kid -kid basis, there are some kids being failed by the current system for sure. All right. Her next question was, what is the evidence for the reforms now being promoted by the federal government and adopted in many states? I think the jury's still out. Um, I mean, the, the real challenge for this book is that it's a fantastic book. It was written a couple of years ago, but this was written in the era of No Child Left Behind, which has been ditched for the slightly different uh, Every Student Succeeds Act. Um and so I think that uh, we've got to catch up. We've got to look at the long-term trends, and the long-term uh, long data. And she makes, uh, she makes some great efforts in there in showing um, what has been effective and just what we don't know uh, mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, you know, the evidence that, again, the reformers are looking at are the standardized test scores. Um, and they're able to take those just like you could do with any statistic and, and, and manipulate it so that it fits your your cause pretty much yeah <laughs> <clears throat> the fourth question she had was what should we do to improve our schools in the lives of children mm -hmm. and this was the the focus for about the last quarter of the book right and i think that's mm, sort of been our focus too in our work and in our roles in education is um, you know, what should we do? And I think maybe we'll get at that through the rest of the discussion about the book, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So 
those were Diane Ravitch's questions. That's how <coughs> she sort of, sort of framed uh, the book and um, how it was written. And it really, really, the book followed those questions. I mean, she started out very clearly laying out that she does not see American education as being in crisis, that she doesn't see based on those no stakes testing that our current system is failing and declining. Um, she points out a lot of the myths and misconceptions um, that reformers are using to base current uh, reforms on. And then um, talks, spends about that last third talking about solutions and ideas that she has for what we can do to um, improve our systems for everyone. All right, so the first question that I came up with was um, based on a quote that Ravitch says in the book. She says, Genuine school reform must be built on hope, not fear, on encouragement, not threats, on inspiration, not compulsion, on trust, not carrots and sticks, on belief in the dignity of the human person, not a lavish devotion to data, on support and mutual respect, not a regime of punishment and blame. To be lasting, school reform must rely on collaboration and teamwork among students, parents, teachers, principals, administrators, and local communities. So my question is... That's what Ravage thinks. What do you think school reform should be built upon? <laughs> I think at the end of the day that school reform uh, needs to be built on reconceptualizing trust and power. I mean, Ravage was coming from a background where she was a top administrator uh, at the federal level. And this is, you know, it's all about power. It's all about what policies do we implement, what sort of rules we put in place, how do we structure the system uh, from the top down. And I think that when we, if we're to look at reform, and Ravitch uh, seems to agree with this, um, is that we need to look at how we could structure things better from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we redesign our, and so we can empower communities more, empower parents more, um, empower schools more? and um, democratize um, how schools are run mm-hmm. and get them out of, um, of this uh, top-down control or being controlled by special interests or chains of schools mm-hmm. uh, that we need to bring back some real community uh, control. Another one is trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we really need to trust, um, trust schools. We need to trust students. Uh, we need to trust uh, communities and parents to make these decisions and to... To, uh, to run schools that are truly meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's something that we've talked about um, a lot is making sure that everyone has an equal voice in the conversation. So all of the stakeholders, um, just like what she suggested in her quote, from students to parents, teachers, administrators, uh, policymakers, and then the local community, business leaders, civic leaders, you know, people that have have voice in the community, but everyone coming to the table and sitting down and really discussing, okay, well, what are we educating for? Like those questions you suggested at the beginning. Um, and, and kind of start from the beginning. What, what's the purpose of our school? Um, what, what are we wanting kids to know and understand and be able to do by the time they leave? And then thinking about, well, how can we ensure that that's happening? You know, just those basic, those basic questions, but then really going back to the root with everyone that education impacts sitting at the table and having equal voice. Right. Yeah, how does Ravitch feel about that? About communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, yeah. that's her point, too, is that the, the schools should be community schools where it's, they're run by the community, where community members are, are coming in, 
um, are having an, having a, a role in, in the schools and that the schools are producing students or producing adults at the end um, who are able to give back to their community. Her, her point um, throughout the book is kind of a theme was this idea that um, schools have, have sort of lost what they were initially developed for, which is to create civic-minded people, to create good citizens who can um, operate within, within the democracy. Uh, and schools at this point have become focused on workplace development and focused on um, career readiness and college readiness at the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, at the, <laughs> uh, so, and, and, and instead aren't <laughs> focusing on um, those, you know, those character building qualities that, you know, to, to be developing good citizens. Okay. Well, I think that getting back to the, the the social aspect where we're blaming schools, I think, too much for for social ills, and there seems to be a real social economic um, grounding for a lot of the problems that are blamed on schools, I think we need to get down to just a very basic question. Mm-hmm. Is poverty the real issue here? Mm-hmm. Well, Diane Ravitch seems to think so. Um, she spends a lot of the, the talk in the book uh, at the beginning about, you know, really focusing in on this idea that kids are coming to school on an uneven playing field. Um, so by the time they get to kindergarten or even to, to preschool, um, kids who are coming from a background of poverty aren't, uh, don't have the same vocabulary, don't have the same exposure to text and print. Um, don't have the same healthcare opportunities, and so they're already lagging behind their peers who are more affluent. And so, um, you know, there's this argument of the reformers that you know it doesn't matter. Kids are kids, and when they come to school, schools ought to be able to produce the same results with with all different kinds of kids um, coming from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, but Ravitch's point is really well: if we were to eradic- eradicate poverty, um, or at least uh, make the playing field a little bit more even for students who are coming from um, a lower socioeconomic status, that um, that then our schools would be better able to serve all of our kids. So maybe this is a good time to share the solutions that Ravage had yeah. um, that, uh, that really connected this and these themes. So the first solution that she, that she shared in the book was to provide good prenatal, good was to provide good prenatal care for every pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. That that the idea is that you know the mind starts to develop you know from in the womb, mm-hmm. and as as well as we can attend to that development, we're going to have healthier and and more capable kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is she said to make high quality early childhood education available to all children. And uh, study after study shows that um, early childhood education creates tremendous benefits, uh, not just for the kid, but for society in general. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a great uh, study that came out, the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis, which she unfortunately doesn't cite in the book, uh, but that was looking at, or that found that we have about a 16% year-over-year annual return on uh, investments in, in preschool education or early childhood education in society, whether it's through higher income potential or building fewer prisons or uh, less expenditures on health care, that there is a real measurable return within society for 
for just a simple investment in early childhood education. Mm-hmm. You, before you move on to her third solution, so something that sort of connected to that, she talks about this idea of wraparound solutions, mm-hmm. um, one of which is to have a, a, a nurse or a doctor or some sort of healthcare clinic in every school so that all children have the same access to uh, uh, medical needs um, and and can receive treatment if they need it immediately, uh, dental care, you know, things like that, things that where if you've got some sort of underlying medical condition, um, that may prevent you from doing your best learning, um, which I thought was a really interesting idea. She also talked about, too, um, the idea, and this kind of goes along with her third solution that you're going to mention, but the, the two other wraparound solutions that she talked about were making sure that all students, but particularly those in high poverty areas, have access to high quality summer programming um, and also high quality after school opportunities, programming for after school, Um, which I think, you know, that benefits all kids, but particularly benefits the kids that are in high poverty situations so that they've got, you know, somewhere to go where they're still working on developing those character building and soft skills, the problem solving skills, the social relationships, things like that. All right, so moving on. So for her third solution, she says that every school should have a full, balanced, and rich curriculum, including the arts, science, history, literature, civics, geography, foreign languages, mathematics, and physical education. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think about that? Um, I think that that's not a new concept, but I also think that uh, you know, in the No Child Left Behind era, in the wake of, you know, Common Core State Standards, that right now we are really um, valuing what we measure, and what we measure is math and reading. And um, so there's a lot of focus in schools, particularly elementary schools, but on that math block and on that reading block. And uh, that that comes at, you know, the, the so some of those other the other important courses like foreign language, like the arts, um, humanities type courses Mm -hmm. get put on the back burner or cut completely or time gets cut or, you know, things happen so that we're preserving the time for the, the two kind of course subjects that are tested using those high stakes testing. So very good. Um, she says to reduce class sizes to improve students' achievement and behavior. Now I think this is a controversial Uh, topic because research shows that you can have huge class sizes and test test scores are about the same. Mm -hmm. So why would we want uh, reduced class sizes? Well, she talks about um, improving uh, behavior and being able to to manage uh, students. Um, But I think, you know, if you're talking, if you're asking me personally, I would much prefer to have a smaller class size because then I can spend more time with each of my students. Um, so there's more of that opportunity to do some of that personalized learning where, you know, the, a student and I can conference and I'm not worrying about 49 other students uh, and what they're doing when I'm working with one-on-one with, or in a small group um, with my students. So, you know, let's, let's talk about that, that behavioral aspect because uh, we seem to be so focused on measurement and so focused on testing. Um, and at the same time in schools, it seems that bullying is on the rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you believe that reduced class sizes is, is one way to address bullying and create more um, healthy cultures within schools? I don't think uh, class size has any impact on 
the tendency for bullying to happen in schools. Um, I think what needs to change in schools to, to work toward uh, bully-free zones is for students to have more of a say in what happens and how it happens and why it happens. So to be to run more democratically where students are uh, have an equal say about the rules and have an equal say in how someone who breaks a rule uh, is, is treated following that. That goes back to that idea of community, the right. school community, um, and and trust. And that could, you know, that could lead to some radical changes if we really truly embrace that. Mm-hmm. Uh, her fifth uh, solution is to ban for-profit charters and charter chains to ensure that charter schools collaborate with public schools to support better education for all children. For those of us maybe joining us internationally, could you explain a little bit the charter school concept and charter chains that we've been seeing? Well, my knowledge of charter schools and, and the, the concept of charter chains is somewhat limited. Um, I learned a lot of it through reading the book. Um, but basically, it was the, the concept was developed in the 80s, early 80s, right? Like 1983, something mm-hmm. like that, um, by someone who wanted um, a, a space for kids who were, were failing in the current school system in the, in the current structures. Um, and so the idea was to make something that was a little bit more personalized, um, take the kids that were struggling the most um, and give them something that they needed. So something new, some sort of alternative. Um, and the person who developed kind of that idea abandoned it in early 2000s um, because of this whole idea of privatization and the chains, the charter chains, because um, charter schools mean big business. And um, what we're seeing now is that, you know, companies like Walmart um, and, you know, places like that are, are, are providing funds for these schools. Um, and when you take something and, and, and privatize it like that and it's all about the bottom line, then it's the students that lose out. So they're, they're looking at it as a, as a profit-making machine um, and, and running it as a business as opposed to uh, thinking about it as a way to develop humans, develop people, develop our students and, and providing them with the, the skills and tools that they need to be successful in our society. Right. And we'd like to think of education in this country uh, as a public good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is it's a big business. And we're even seeing testing companies uh, try to get into the to the charter school movement. And so you have the testing companies which are teaching kids to take their tests. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's just weird. Right. So testing companies develop the test and then they develop curriculum so that students can pass the test. And then they develop trainings for teachers to implement the curriculum so that they're able to pass the test. And all the while, we're not instilling the kinds of values in our kids that that they might need um, to be successful adults in our society. Right. So, again, that last uh, point was ban for-profit charters and charter chains and ensure that charter schools collaborate with public schools to better support uh, education for all children. Mm-hmm. Um, her, sixth, her sixth solution is provide the medical and social services that poor children need to keep up with their advantaged peers. Mm-hmm. And I think you're talking about that by, you know, her recommendation was to, we need um, health professionals within every school yeah. to provide a, a basic and equal level of these services for all kids. Yeah. 
All right, so our seventh point is eliminate high stakes standardized testing and rely instead on assessments that allow students to demonstrate what they know and can do. And I think we've been big cheerleaders <laughs> of this ourselves, right? Surprise! Surprise, yeah. <laughs> Uh, measure what you value. Right. Uh, don't value what you measure. Right. Um, That's what she talks about in there, but she calls it measure what you treasure. Measure what you treasure. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, I, I think we we say it a little bit better. <laughs> um, and the real challenge, though, is that she is looking at this problem from the top down. Uh, like, say, how do we develop policies for that? And... Um, I think that's a much more interesting perspective and say from the community level, it's much easier. So I think that's a real challenge for her to, to advocate from that level. Right. I think, you know, if you're, if you're looking at this from the, the perspective of the reformers and they're thinking, you know, we need to have some way to hold teachers accountable, to hold schools accountable, to hold kids accountable for the things they're supposed to know and understand and be able to do. And to be able to do that in, in, in mass quantities, um, you know, it's multiple choice. It's, you know, something that's easy to deliver and something that's easy to assess. And one of the points she makes, I have the quote here uh, somewhere, um, so basically that the standardized tests are, are good for assessing what the tests were developed to assess. And that's it. And uh, standardized test scores and, and the data collected from them are used right now to assess kids um, and and to, to level them and, and decide what classes they are allowed to enroll in. Uh, they're used to assess teachers and how well they they teach kids. They're used to assess school buildings and decide whether or not they're, they're effective schools. Um, and none of those things were what those tests were designed to do. And so, you know, I think we're looking at we need to redesign not necessarily how we're holding anyone accountable, but we need to re- redesign what the measures look like for the things that we think are important for kids to know and understand and be able to do. So it's like we, we mentioned at the beginning of this, to go back to the drawing board and have all of the key players sitting at the table and decide what what is it that we want them to know and understand and be able to do by the end of their experience. And then how do we how will we know and, and completely redesign what that assessment piece looks like? I couldn't I can't say that any better. That was beautiful. I'm sure you could. <laughs> All right. Uh, Her eighth point is to insist that teachers, principals, and superintendents be professional educators. That was one that, in our conversations the last couple days, really struck with you. (laughs) Yes. Why? (laughs) Well, her point in the book is that, you know, superintendents in particular uh, need to be educators because... If you're, you know, if they're, if they're not, then the people that they're supposed to be leading actually know more than they do about the system that they're in charge of. Um, her point is that, you know, a principal should should become a principal after having been in the classroom for several years, several years, so that they are able to collaborate and work with the teachers that they're leading in their buildings and becoming from some sort of contextual base. So that they have that experience that they can draw from so that they've been in the trenches. Um, And then same with the superintendents, having had been educators, having been principals, and then moving up the ladder to a superintendency so that they have that experience to draw from, that they know 
what mm-hmm. you know what a teacher experiences on a day-to-day basis so that they know what a principal experiences on a day- day-to-day right. basis so that those who, who they are leading um, don't have more knowledge about that than they do. Well, I think there's also an implicit um, professionalism that that she was getting at. And I think that we like to view teachers and administrators and you know, superintendents as professionals. Uh, but I think that oftentimes we don't. Like if you're a lawyer, which is a, a profession, you, profession, you start off as a junior lawyer, then you move up, you gain credentials and experience, and you step up to partner or take on different uh, areas of law. Mm-hmm. But within schools, we don't quite do that. We don't have that we don't have that sort of chain of professional right. movement and that, you know, you could come in um, as somebody who ran a small business and then take over a school district or somebody that was uh, doing policy research in a different field and then take over a school district. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that she's really getting at this, this idea that we need to develop uh, education as more of a profession. Yeah. We call it a profession, but we're not treating it like a profession. Right. And that's a big deal. And we're not treating those within it as professionals. And I think that's another key aspect that she gets at in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. With well, the ninth point, uh, she says public schools should be controlled by elected school boards or by boards in large cities appointed for a set term by more than one elected official. Why? What do you think? Well, I think she's getting at that um, we need to bring back community community control, community management, and it's got to be separated from special interests that can come in and sort of take over um, take over schools or take over school districts. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's really getting at. And that this whole privatization movement is that sometimes you've got private actors that are taking over uh, public schools. And that is not good. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think that her point there is all about that community and developing schools within the community that that serve the community and that the community can also serve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. The 10th point is to devise actionable strategies and specific goals to reduce racial segregation and poverty. And it is really sad that in this century, this is still an issue that we have not addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think anyone would argue with that. I, I think the argument comes from whether schools can be fixed and schools can be effective uh, in spite of racial segregation and, and poverty, or whether we tackle racial segregation and po- poverty up front. Um, and then that, that trickles down to our schools and how effective they can be. Right. And you find that the schools that the so-called failing schools are the ones that are in the ones that areas are highly segregated uh, and high poverty. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Her final point or final suggestion uh, is to recognize that public education is a public responsibility, not a consumer good. Mm-hmm. Right. And that gets back to that whole the privatization issue. Um, there was one thing that she talked about that I thought was sort of funny. Hopefully I kept it here. Um, oh no, I didn't. She basically, she talks about the idea that, you know, we're consumers, you know, America is sort of a consumer driven, uh, place and that we, you know, we, we shop around for the best jeans and the best quality and we shop around for our favorite, you know, fruit or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that with this whole privatization push that 
parents are now able to sort of, or some parents are now able to sort of shop around um, for this education experience that's not necessarily um, superior to what they might be able to get at a public school. Um, but it's this idea of developing the competition uh, among the schools in the hope, the reformers hope that as a result of the competition, that public schools will step up um, in order to try to keep some of the, the children that are uh, leaving to attend the charter type schools. Mm-hmm. So school currently is seen as uh, preparation for college, career, global competition. And Ravage suggested that school should be a place where people learn skills to benefit themselves and society and the broader economy, mm-hmm. uh, like through character development, citizenship, developing a love of learning, creativity, initiative, social skills, and knowledge development. So when there's so much pressure to earn grades, diplomas, and degrees, is this learning actually meaningful? Mm-hmm. How can we justify it when most workplace learning takes place on the job? for example, and not in schools. Mm-hmm. And there was a Dutch study that came out a couple of years ago that showed that somewhere between 84 and 90 some percent, maybe 95 percent of learning um, or job learning uh, happens informally rather than quite formally. Mm-hmm. And our schools are really focused on formal learning right. and supposedly for job preparation. Right. Right. If we take, you know, if we if we look at the Common Core State Standards and sort of take those back to their root, it really was... Um, developed because kids were graduating from high school, going into college, and then going into career and not having the skills that they needed to be successful, particularly in college. And so they backmapped those skills all the way to kindergarten, and those became the, the, the standards, the Common Core State Standards. Um, and, you know, at this point, we're so focused on ensuring that students meet these standards so that they're ready for college and career that we're forgetting about those character building pieces, that we're forgetting about the soft skills, the problem solving, the, the, the social skills they're lacking, the in, uh, ingenuity, um, innovation, innovativeness, innovativeness, innovation. Innovative. Yes, we'll go with that. Um, capacity to innovate. That's right. Capacity to innovate. That's what I said. Um, <clears throat> you know, citizenship and developing that love of learning. Instead, um, we're taking this big idea of what they ought to know by the end of the school year and parsing it out and and in developing these tiny little pieces that they're learning little by little along the way. And they may be successful and, and show that they're proficient with those strategies. But are they really developing the the lifelong strategies and skills that they need to be successful once they get to college and career? And I would suggest that that maybe not, because really our focus right now is not on the individual child necessarily. It's on these being college and career ready and being able to compete in this global society as opposed to, you know, being able to to critically think and um, identify problems and solve problems and things like that. We're really focused in on you know, meeting these these academic standards. So what are some strategies or approaches that you think that we should take within schools to help better meet these needs um, for being more meaningful in the workforce? You know, I think at this point, we if we're looking at our current system, and this is what Ravitch does too, which I, which I, I found interesting, and I guess we can talk about that later. But it, she she's basically looking at, okay, within our current system and exactly how, how it works today, here are some things that we could do, some small tweaks 
or maybe larger tweaks um, to to ensure better success for our kids within the current system. She's not talking about radically changing anything. There's no revolution here. It's really just here's what we have. Here's how we can make some changes to make what we have even better for our kids. Right. Mm-hmm. You'd agree with that. Right. Um, and so, you know, if I'm going to think about it in those terms right now, we we and our public schools in the United States and uh, traditional schools all over have have standards we're in a standards-based era and so to think about what can we do within the structure of standards um to ensure that our kids are really ready to be you know civic-minded and 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 be out in the world and and um you know citizens uh i i think that we need to look more at something like the 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 thematic learning um things like they like they do in in finland with the the um, project-based learning and um phenomena based learning and looking at the standards and 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 having students take more responsibility with what they're going to do and how they're going to do it based on their curiosities based on their aptitudes based on their interests and combining standards in a way that makes sense and and developing their learning around a combined set of standards as opposed to you go to math and you learn this set of standards, you go to science and you learn this set of unrelated standards where math and science standards could easily be related and you easily could hit many different standards of all different content areas through some sort of theme-based or project-based or phenomenon-based experience. All right, so getting on to standards then, because Ravage talks a lot about standards, uh, standardized tests and the common uses or misuses of the data that's collected from them. Mm-hmm. Are there any good uses for standardized tests? Can standardized multiple, multiple choice tests actually reflect student knowledge or teacher quality or school performance? Uh, okay, well, I'll start with those last few because those are easier. No, uh, I mean, you were there. No, 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 no. They- <laughs> No, they cannot uh, accurately reflect student knowledge. They can accurately reflect what a student remembers um, about a specific topic on a specific day. Mm -hmm. And that may reflect that they selected the answer the test maker decided was the right one. Uh, No, they cannot. There's can predict teacher quality. There's no reflection on teacher quality with a student's scores on standardized tests. And uh, same with school performance. So no, no, no. Um, are there any good uses for standardized tests? That's a tough one. Um, I'm th- I think no, um, unless they're no stakes standardized tests like like NAEP and like PISA, like um, you know tests that students take to get just a pulse on where we are, you know, and 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 what we're doing. Um, maybe to look at trends, uh, but not to make decisions about where a child will end up in school, what sort of school they'll end up in, what kinds of classes they need to take or are allowed to take, um, certainly not to place any judgments on teacher quality or on school effectiveness. So for much more diagnostic uses, maybe. Maybe, but in order to be diagnostic, the results have to be in immediately and, and timely enough so that a teacher can actually analyze the data that they're seeing based on that one student and what they know about that student um, among a variety of different data points to be able to use it effectively. And that's, that doesn't happen with standardized tests. So so, so I'm going to say no. Okay, you're going to say no. <laughs> All right. Well, and, and another thing that, that has been trending is that Okay, I, th- I think there are, there's some problems with um, with uh, tests and data. And one of the biggest problems is that nobody knows how to read the data or understand the data 
to make meaningful decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we do standardized testing in Minnesota, we don't get the any results back until August, uh, which is too late to make any to make any differences. And so there isn't any any chance for it to be used uh, diagnostically. But, but people are using it to, now let's judge schools, mm-hmm. let's ju- judge teachers. Mm-hmm. And um, you could have a great teacher who decides to actually teach kids, enable kids to learn, rather than teaching them to take tests well, mm-hmm. who gets poorly rated. And in some places, you know, teachers can get fired for having low test scores. Yeah. And that's, that's real dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right, especially when you consider that one year a teacher uh, may have students who on average have very high test scores and the next year may on average have a different set of students that have very low test scores. Um, One of the things that Diane Ravitch talks about is um, Michelle Ree and her, you know, the the ideas that she had about, um, you know, that a student needs three years of, um, of good teachers to you know, ha- have a strong educational experience that it takes three years worth of, um, of having a good, a high quality teacher. And on the other side, three years of a low quality teacher damages a student's educational experience. And, um, so Michelle Ree went in and fired teachers and principals, um, left and right as a result of these test scores. Um, when, you know, it's, there's no, that's just the wrong way to use that kind of data. Mm-hmm. And so we picked this book, because we have a new president, uh, we have a new secretary of education, and we thought that in the last couple of years that we've been moving forward and moving past a lot of these ideas, but now the government is revisiting some of the old ideas presented in the book, which is a privatization of public education, which the new secretary of education really believes in, and vouchers, which she really, really, really believes in, and this is, again, under the or I just say, I don't mean again, but this is under the guise of school choice. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they want to run schools like businesses. Right. Is that a good idea? It, business is not about individual people. It's not about feelings. It's not about human development. It's about the bottom line. It's about p- profit. Um, and in, in school and in education, we're about each child. Um you know, I, I like to talk about the difference between all children and each child uh, because seemingly they're they're synonymous, but they aren't. When you talk about all children, uh, children can get left behind. And not that I'm talking about no child left behind, I'm not. But, um, you know, when you talk about each child, that's really what we're in the business of, we're working with and developing each child, facilitating the development of each child so that they can be the, the, the kind of person, the most successful person that they want to be along the journey to wherever it is that they want to go. Um, and I just don't think you can do that if you're thinking about them as, as, as a business. Right. And I think that, that one of the fallacies of this is that this uh, reduces education or schools into a bit of a commodity mm-hmm. that really runs under sort of the Adam Smith uh, uh, rules of economics. You know, you got supply, you got demand, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think that schools or knowledge-based systems really work that way. Mm-hmm. There is no, there is no scarcity of knowledge. It only grows and grows and grows. Of course, there's a, more of a demand for it as well. And I think we need to start really thinking about all this competitiveness of or the 
you know, the excuses of market competitiveness of school choice really impacts schools, teachers, uh, students, and parents. Mm-hmm. We had a question um, or a statement, uh, or a statement and a question that came in from Shani Christie. Sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Uh, maybe Shiny. Uh, but you said, can't reduce, can't reduce students to just data. Is there an alternative way to just uh, do testing? Well, I agree. Um, no, we can't reduce students to data. I mean, it, it, what we really need to do is be focused on, you know, this sort of idea of personalized education, but where we're really focusing on each child. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things that Ravitch doesn't talk about in this book, and that we that was kind of one of our last question, but is it okay if I talk about it now? Sure. I only have 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I noticed that she didn't talk about in there was uh, students' role in their own uh, education. And so this idea of self-directed learning and, and self-assessment and, you know, students really, uh, you know, understanding what it is that they want to know and understand and be able to do by the end of a project, by the end of a grade, by the end of their experience in school, and then determining ways, at, you know, together to de- as, as a mentor or as a coach, as a, a advisor, as a facilitator, as a teacher, um, with the, the each child to determine how well they have understood and are able to do the things that they're wanting to do. Right. Um, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that because it's certainly not multiple choice testing. It's certainly not um, mass produced standardized tests. It's individual tests for each child based on what it is that they uh, that they determine is what they want to, <laughs> to know and understand and be able to do. And I, one of the points that we made in Manifesto 15 is that you simply cannot measure knowledge in a person's head. It's got tacit and explicit elements, and but real personal meaning. I mean, knowledge is a very personal thing. And the moment that we try to measure knowledge, we're just simply degrading it back to information or, or data. And that's what really what these tests really, really measure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. We're almost running out of time, so I'm going to go real quick here. Um, so Ravage suggests that the ideal school be created by community to serve the community, reflecting the goals and needs of the community. Schools need the support of the entire community, including parents, educators, community leaders, civic leaders, business leaders, uh, and the mayor. How can we enhance the level of community involvement to better support schools? Mm-hmm. You're a school teacher. Mm-hmm. You're deeply involved in public in a public school. How do we do this? You know, I, I, I like I've said, I said it two or three times, I think, in this conversation. I've said it multiple times just, you know, in passing with other people. And I really think that it's going back to the drawing board. It's getting all of those community leaders together, along with students, along with parents, along with teachers, and really talking about what what is it that we're educating for? What are the purposes? What do we want kids to know and understand and be able to do by the time they leave our education system? And then looking at, okay, now that we know what we want them to know, understand, and be able to do, how do we ensure that that's happening? And then look at the, the steps that it's going to take, the, the activities, uh, the learning tasks, you know, things like that, how, how we're going to get them to the, the end goal here. Um, I think it's inviting the community in. I think it's making partnerships within the community. I think it's kids and teachers and, and, and administrators going out into the community and inviting the community in. I don't know that our schools currently um, 
we definitely partner with, you know, businesses and, and community leaders, but I don't know that there's that sort of reciprocal relationship um, happening across the board. Um, so I think that's sort of the next step is developing that relationship where we're inviting you in and then we're also being invited out um, as part of the community. Yeah, okay, so Beth Anderson uh, says, the issue that I come across with privatization are my Republican friends who look out for their, who look out only for their affluent children. I can give them a litany of reasons. It is a societal bad practice, but I have a difficult time helping them see how they are either part of the problem or solution. Thoughts? Yeah, we, <laughs> yes, we feel the same way. We totally agree. Um, yeah, and that's something that, you know, we've just that idea of, you know, sort of that 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 white privilege piece that that I've been wrestling with. And I think maybe you have too. just, you know, since January um, where we we don't have to feel fear uh, because of who we are. And, um, you know, we send our school, our kids to school knowing that they'll be fine because of who we are. And. Um, you know, it's t taking a step and back and kind of thinking about, okay, so so how, what can we do with that then um, to be part of the solution as opposed to just kind of hunkering down and, and, and resting on our laurels and, and feeling safe that, okay, well, we don't have to worry about it because it, it doesn't affect us. But how can we, how can we develop, I, I think it goes back to that community piece as a community and really embrace everyone within our community um, so that we're doing what's good for all kids, not just my kids, not just our kids, um, but they're all our kids. And how do we, how do we get that message across to everyone? Right. And the, the, the policies that are being proposed through the government now really seem to be geared towards, uh, boosting this white privilege mm -hmm. and making it even stronger. And so it's uh, it's very 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 scary. Yeah. And I think we just need to resist. Uh, we need to fight, and um, we need to vote. And <laughs> yeah. And um, to make um, to make um, to stop this and to make a real change happen. Yeah. And I think too, going back to that idea that that Diane Ravitch talked about in the book is, um, you know, ensuring that kids have access to good. Uh, preschool, um, that kids have access to, to health care, you know, so really going in and to the root of the source, which, you know, is, is poverty and figuring out ways to make it so that uh, to either eradicate poverty or to make it so that that isn't necessarily a contributing factor to student success in school. Um, and through some of those solutions that she re recommended, the health care piece, the, the access to quality curriculum. Um, but the scary thing for me is to think about the, these this privatization that's taking the affluent families away, and what's happening then is that our our public schools are left with kids who are living in poverty, kids who who don't have affluent parents, um, and you know we have teachers that maybe aren't as high quality. And that's something that we didn't even get to in here. Diane Ravitch spends a lot of time talking about Teach for America. That's another. Another, another topic, episode, yeah, another <laughs> a different we'll, hour-long conversation. We'll, we'll have to do a podcast um, episode on Teach but, for America. But thinking about the divide in, you know, two, three, four years, God help us, eight years, right? Um, where will our public school children be if this privatization really takes hold and the vouchers and the school choice 
and what that looks like. And under the guise that, well, the, the competitive nature of this will make public schools step up. It, it, it's terrifying. All right. So we're just about out of time. But, well, first of all, I want to thank everybody for joining us, um, uh, this conversation. But I want to do a bonus time question for you. Because Diane Ravitch talked a bit about waiting for Superman in the book. And this is a movie I I refrained from watching because I knew it would just piss me off. And you do the same thing. Yeah. And I have a puppy biting me right now. <laughs> um, so we watched it. Uh, we watched it uh, a couple of days ago. And um, I think that this ties with that, the last question, the comments he had in the last, last one, because that was really a view of education reform is viewed through the lens of supporting white privilege, really. Yeah. So how did you feel after watching the movie? Mm-hmm. I felt the way I anticipated feeling, and I, I'm not glad that I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was really pissed off. I, yeah. I thought that the oversimplif- oversimplification of things, the uh, just saying schools are bad without saying why and saying all you need to do is just fire principals and fire teachers and without saying, well, why? What's, what, what is a bad teacher? What's a bad principal? And um, I think there are some problems that we could definitely see, but the, there wasn't any real logic that really came through. I mean, really. Can schools be improved dramatically by firing teachers and principals? I don't think so. Is there a line of people, uh, people lined up outside uh, looking to to teach or? Not that I've (laughs) noticed. I don't know. Maybe. All right. No, I think for me, the the toughest part of the movie was the very end where they had the children that they'd been following throughout the the course of the movie um, that we're trying to get into these charter schools. And for us knowing that, you know, at that point when the movie was filmed, that charter schools weren't regulated at all. They didn't have any, any sort of standard. There was, I mean, there, it was just sort of hit or miss on the quality. They weren't producing any better academic achievement than, but you know, these kids and their families were, were putting all of their hopes for a better life into these schools. And then watching them, uh, not be selected in the lottery, and the you know the horrible sad music that accompanied it, and the tears, and just you know, and thinking about that 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 school that was most likely inferior, if not just somewhat identical to to the experience they were already having, um, was lost to them because they their number didn't get picked, um, and you know the idea that these families thought that that was the answer, that was their way out, that was what they needed, that they had lost faith and lost trust in their in their community school and their public school system, uh, it's just heartbreaking. All right, and oftentimes those schools are just remixing the same old stuff. Yeah. And so it was heartbreaking. All right, so we're out of time. We have a restless puppy that's uh, making all sorts of noises and biting because she wants she to, go to go play. outside. She wants to go outside. <laughs> she wants to play. listen to this interview, why not earn an hour of continuing professional education? After all, you've already done half the work. Just go to educationfutures.com learn and sign up for the Moodle course that corresponds with this episode. After you post your thoughts in response to the questions we have for you in the sound off forum, you can download your certificate of completion. 
It's free and it's our gift to you for listening and for supporting us. Again, visit educationfutures.com learn to earn your free continuing professional education credit. At Education Futures, we provide research, workshops, and advising for schools, governments, and other organizations that want to change the world for the better. We believe that education and our approaches to human development need both an innovation and a revolution. We look at the big picture from a systems perspective and question, what are we educating for? What does a global citizen of the 21st century or even the 22nd century look like? And when we start looking hard at these questions, we realize that we need to focus on how to learn, not what to learn. And this refocusing on the how requires us to develop more meaningful ecology of solutions. We are ambitious. We want to transform schools into vibrant, visionary, hard-charging, front-running, and value-creating centers of excellence that everybody be proud to attend, work for, and collaborate with. We practice what we preach. We advocate for open dialogue and networking, and we share everything we've learned openly to the greatest extent possible. And we try to have fun as well when we engage communities of educators in our workshops and research. To learn more, visit us at educationfutures.com. You can also write to me personally at john at educationfutures.com. Or me at kelly at educationfutures.com. This episode of the Education Futures podcast is made possible through the support of our wonderful listeners, and especially the folks who write us, provide feedback, insights, and ideas for future episodes. You can learn more about this series at educationfutures.com slash podcast. If you would like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at educationfutures. Email us your stories. Keeping conversations about the future of education going depends on you. We would love for you to share your stories, thoughts, opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts. Please email us at info at educationfutures.com and visit us at educationfutures.com to engage in the discussion involving learning and the future of education. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Morbeck. And I'm at Kelly Killorn. Thank you. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.